Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us. Today, we hope to have a conversation that, quite frankly, I think Jim and I both decided is pretty long overdue, um, and that's a conversation about race. Um, even if you don't keep up with the headlines regularly, you know how much race relations have pulsated through the veins of endless conflicts, both locally and, of course, on the world stage as well. And a few years ago, amidst I would say an especially kind of electric and divisive time of racial conflict, at least here locally. Jim, you spoke at Mac here, our church, on the topic of race. But but when you did so, you led the conversation to a place where, unfortunately, many don't tend to take it, or if so, have actually done so in a dishonest way. And that's what, what I'm referring to, is you took it to the Bible. And you broke down, essentially, a theology of race and talked about race from the perspective of, of God's design and his purpose. It was an incredibly helpful conversation for our church to have, not not only to, to illuminate our understanding of the origin and the purpose of race, but also really to unite us in you know, how, as the church, we can work towards safeguarding that design. And I know that we only have 30 minutes or so rather than the multiple weeks that you took um, before when you talked on this, but I'm confident that even 30 minutes or so of just hitting the headlines of that will be really helpful. So, yep, for that conversation today. Yeah, I, I, I really am. Great. Yeah. Well, let's just start then with, this is a, a big question in, in, in and of itself, but what does a theology of race entail? Well, let's talk about what the foundation of a theology of race would have to entail, because again, you could write entire tomes on a theology of race. So, um, so for brevity, the, the Bible begins a racial conversation, obviously with creation itself. Um, in those opening uh, verses of Genesis, uh, in the grand creation narrative that sets everything off and begins it all, we find three very important statements that I've gone back to on a host of issues over the years because it's so foundational to a Christian worldview uh, um, and and Christian theology. But here, here were the big three. First, that we were made and that we were wonderfully and creatively designed. Uh, the entire creative process was miraculously generated and, and guided by the living God. Um, second, we were uh, made in the image of God. That's the second big idea of the creation narrative. When God made us, he put um, a soul, just a shorthand. What is the definition of the image of God? Is that we, we, that means we have a soul. We have the ability to respond to and relate to the living God. Uh, it's more than just intelligence. It's more than just consciousness. It's more than the ability to, to think or, or have reason or to grow or develop. It means we have a soul, which means that humans can do what only uh, – all humans are the only ones that have that kind of relationship with God that can be soul to soul, spirit to spirit. Nothing else carries the image of God in creation. It also means that every single human being, because of that, has incalculable worth and value. And it doesn't matter what color, for example, their skin is. Uh, or how much money they make, or they live in the world, or even the state of their mental or physical capabilities. Every human being has incalculable value and significance because they were made in the image of God. Um, 
that single idea is one of the most radical in the world, and it's not held by most worldviews. But the Christian worldview holds that because we were created, um, there is value in every single person. Uh, there's meaning and purpose to every life. It also means that there's someone above and outside of our existence who stands over it as an authority in defense of the value of every person. And, and when you read the writings of Martin Luther King and, and you listen to his sermons, you see that this was really behind the heart of his, his message. And I, I, I'll never forget the first time, I because I've read it more than once, um, the letter from a Birmingham jail, which was just such a stirring thing. And in, and in it, he, he, he pulls specifically from the creation narrative. He pulls specifically from a Christian worldview that we've just been discussing, a theology, if you will, of race, where he says there's two types of law. There's just and there is unjust. And uh, an unjust law is out of sync with the moral law of God, and a just law is one that is in sync with the moral law of God. There is that transcendent value to things. And he went on to say that all segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul, damages the personality, goes against this idea of people being made in the image of God and having equal worth. King's argument was based on the worth of a human being bestowed upon them by God, regardless of how other human beings might value them. He laid claim to a law above man's law, a value above, you know, the system's values. And no other worldview would have given King the basis for um, such a claim. But anyway, as we continue to kind of lay the foundation of a theology for race, there's a third statement that the Bible makes about who we are. It says that human beings are not only made in the image of God with a soul for relationship with God, but they were made male and female. In other words, when God created human beings, he intentionally created diversity. He, he deliberately made us a race of men and a race of women. But that wasn't all about diversity. Diversity went further beyond our sexuality. He made us as humans in his image as men and women, but then gave each one of us very different characteristics as men and women. And, you know, you could go on a whole rip of all the things that set individuals apart, everything from their retinas, their vocal patterns, the shape of their ears and fingerprints and such. But there's part of that is you have a skin and that skin has a color and that is part of our creation as well. So if you're going to have kind of a bit of an opening theology, race is part of creation. Um, but as people made in the image of God, we have equal worth before God as human beings, regardless of whether we are male or female, black, white, brown, and so forth. Hmm. Well, let's kind of keep that train of thought going then. Like, where did the different races of human beings come from? Yeah, um, that's a, a question that, that is often posed, and, and you don't hear many people answer that, do you? Or try to, at least. Um, let, me, let me begin, because this is important to me. Uh, by saying that differing skin colors and ethnic distinctions in our world did not come about as a result of certain people being punished by God or cursed by God. Uh, let's, let's get that. And you may be wondering why I even bring that up is because that was precisely what was used uh, to used to be taught as a way of justifying slavery. Mm -hmm. um, for some, the theological argument used by Christians for embracing slavery was that these people were cursed by God, that black people were cursed, and, and the curse made their skin go black, which made them destined for servitude, and therefore it was appropriate to have them in servitude. Uh, and here's where they tried to get that from. Um, after the great flood story involving Noah, um, there was a, a fallout between Noah and, and one of his sons uh, named Ham. And Noah, uh, the first 
<laughs> a little bit of, if you haven't read this story carefully, this may surprise some people, but the very first thing Noah did after he got out of the ark was tried to get drunk as fast as he could. He, he, he planted, uh, um, uh, he planted a vineyard. It really was like the first thing he did <laughs> was plant his vineyard. And he got his first batch of wine, and he really liked that first batch of wine. And uh, as in getting buck naked and passing out. Uh, Ham came upon his dad and immediately thought, okay, this would be nice to put on Instagram. And uh, he went on telling everybody about his father and really made a mockery of him. Uh, his other two sons showed up, but instead of making a mockery or talking about him, they, they showed the father honor and respect, and they covered him up. They actually took a blanket and walked backwards so they wouldn't gaze on his, on his nakedness and covered him up. When Noah woke up and realized what Ham had done and had dishonored him by mocking him, he essentially disowned him, and he cursed his son and his descendants, who became known as the Canaanites. Part of the curse... Uh, is that Ham and his descendants would become subject to the other sons of Noah. Now, from this, it was believed that the curse not only involved the actual enslavement of Ham and his descendants, but the changing of the color of their skin from white to black, um, which is beyond ridiculous. Um, nothing is said in scripture whatsoever about their skin changing color. They just made that up. In fact, we know that their skin did not become black because we know that the Canaanites, meaning the descendants of Ham, were indeed Caucasian. And nothing about slavery was being endorsed or enshrined. Just the idea of Ham's sin against his father, he would be now subject to his brothers. And of course, he would be because if, if Ham was cut out of his inheritance, he would not have anything from Noah. He would have to work for his brothers for his living. So that was really all that that was about. So uh, how were the different races started? Adam and Eve. I mean, you really, and, and then I would throw in the Tower of Babel, kind of as a two-part process. Speaking with Adam and Eve, the Bible states that the entire human race flows from an original man and an original woman, Adam and Eve. Regardless of what transpired up to that point, the Bible clearly teaches that humanity, uh, humans being made in the image of God, given the very breath of life from God and a soul by which to respond to and relate to God, uh, that began with two people, Adam and Eve. Uh, and with those two people, the seeds of every race. But let's not read our understanding of race into the Bible's understanding of race. Let's kind of, I give you an introductory theology, but we're going to keep teasing that one out as we go along. Uh, when the Bible talks about race, it's never about the color of skin. Ever. Never. When the Bible talks about the differences between people, it talks about how people come from different nations, different tribes, different languages, uh, different people groups. There's not a single reference uh, to them being differentiated by how they looked. Not one. Instead, it's about geography. It's about culture. It's about nationality. Um, and all people, nations, tribes, and lands, all originated with Adam and Eve. So there aren't multiple races. There's just one race, the human race. Uh, this is noted in the New Testament. I mean, Acts, when you read that from one man, he made every nation uh, of men, that they would inhabit the whole earth. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to make physical appearance um, a uh to not make physical appearance, I'm sorry, a way of differentiating people or separating people. In fact, the opposite was the case. Again, in the book of Acts, uh, the apostle Peter noted that the message of Jesus just kind of broke down all cultural, geographic, ethnic barriers. And he, he said, God does not show favoritism uh, toward anybody, but accepts people from every nation. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and that phrase, God does not show favoritism, is an interesting one. In, in, in the original Greek, it's, 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 it, when you study, it's a single word, um, prosopolemtis, uh, um, and it meant to lay hold of a face, to lay hold of it. And it was literally God saying, don't, don't, God does not look at a person's face. He, he doesn't do that. That's not what distinguishes us. So how did the various ethnic, you know, uh, variations among humans take place? And specifically from all stemming from one man and one woman. Well, it's, it's, it's really not that big of a mystery, at least biologically. The DNA in a human cell uh, can not only produce who and what we are as individuals, but it holds within it the potential for variability. Uh, which brings up what happened with the Tower of Babel. If you've heard of that, but aren't as familiar with the actual story, people decided uh, to use all of the learning and technology that they had at their disposal to build a temple or a stairway to heaven. And not to worship God or to honor God, but to worship and honor themselves, to show that they did not need God, that they would be gods to themselves. And God, having just given humanity a second chance after the flood with the reboot following Noah, loved them too much to see them bring destruction on themselves again. So he stepped in and he made it so that they didn't even speak the same language and couldn't coordinate their plans technologically. And then he scattered them throughout the earth. And that's why even to this day, we talk about someone babbling when they don't make sense. So why is that significant to the question of race? The separation that happened created the circumstances that facilitated the physical variations of the human family. Uh, in tight-knit societies, dominant genes tend to produce a, a more static set of strains, whereas in smaller populated groups, recessive genes are allowed greater freedom to flourish. So you take a rich genetic pool coupled with a dispersal of the human family to various regions and, and, and outside environmental pressures and concerns and, and contexts, and you have the perfect environment for the development over time of differing physical um, features. But as you said, like what happened at Babel wasn't God's plan. Like, and so what, and yet he did build, as you mentioned, like within the DNA of Adam and Eve, the capability of these different, and I'm talking about, I'm using race here in terms of physical appearance, not like a race of, 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 um, of humankind, as you mentioned, but so what would have been the vision of community between the races? Maybe that God had in, in mind. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the classic text in Galatians. That's the heart of Christian community. That's the vision, if you will. And it can become reality through Christ. Um, right before that verse in Galatians, you know, 328 and 327, it talks about how it's through faith in Christ alone that all of us who were baptized into Christ, we've clothed ourselves with Christ. In other words, that's our new skin, if you will. Um, that's why you, uh, you know, that's why you can look at other people differently. And when you look at them, you don't see skin color. You see the, the white robe of Christ, you know, and, and, and the oneness we have in Christ, that's what we should be seeing. And so, um, I remember one time reading, I'm not going to be able to say it as eloquently as they did, but they, they said, you know, you just have as followers of Christ, you know, you have people with beautiful Asian and, and black and brown and white skin, different accents, all pursuing this mutual sacrificial love for one another in the power of the spirit as the people of God. It's a beautiful vision. 
In fact, in the book of Revelation, John says as much. I mean, he says there's a vast crowd too large to count. And he went out of his way from every nation and tribe and people and language. It was, you know, the all together. And, and that was a vision for this. Um, and, and if you wanted a single word for this vision, it would be the word shalom, the vision of community. A powerful Jewish word that was used as both a greeting and a farewell. Uh, big idea in the Bible. I mean, it's general meaning. Common under meeting would be like peace or health or prosperity, but it, it ran much deeper than that. It really it was, as, as um, Plantinga wrote on this, I thought, um, um, Neil Plantinga wrote on this very well. But um, the word shalom is the webbing together of God and humans and all creation in justice and fulfillment and in delight. And it's when humans and God and all of creation so act in concert with each other that justice breaks out and peace breaks out and wholeness breaks out and love breaks out. That's what the Christian church has to offer the world that it doesn't already have. And it begins as we model this new community. And again, go back, going back to Dr. King, when he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, I mean, his, that was his thing. You know, we have a dream. It's like, and, he, and he began to cast the vision and the dream of shalom. Uh, you know, when people are not judged by the color of their skin, but he famously said by the content of their character. And he went on to describe that day when little black boys and, and uh, little white boys and little white girls and little black girls would, would hold hands and be able to join together as sisters and brothers. And he was casting the vision for the biblical idea of community. Hmm. Well, related to this topic is the idea of racism. And I feel like over the last couple of years, I've heard more than a dozen different takes on what is racism exactly, all with kind of little nuances to it. But we're having this conversation based on a Christian worldview, you know, and how God views race. And and so I'm curious, like, how would you define racism in, in the context of this conversation? And, and why would you consider it or what what biblical basis would make racism evil? Yeah. Well, it is a great evil and it undermines and it destroys and it rips apart the very nature of God's creation of a single human race made in the image of God for relationship with him and with each other. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And let's be clear about the nature of the evil because racism is a word, as you mentioned, that's being used right now and applied to almost everything in our politically charged social media, trolling, Facebook posting climate by every side imaginable. But we can't lose the real nature of this sin because if everything is racist, nothing is racist. And so let's be crystal clear about this. Racism is believing in racial superiority. It's believing that race determines intellectual, cultural, and moral capacities. Uh, from that comes the practice of racism, which involves both racial prejudice and bigotry and discrimination against others based on their race or ethnicity. And that is sin. That is a great evil. Uh, that is a stench in God's nostrils. It betrays the heart of God toward his creation, which is that all people are one and all are made in his image. To claim that you have essentially, this would be the racist idea, you have more of the image of God than somebody else. And you matter more to God than somebody else, that you are distinct from the human race, the rest of the human race, in a way that is superior. And that's heresy. Let's just call that what it is. And to have it take root and erupt in hatred and mistrust and division is just unconscionable. And, and let's be clear, you know, I, I, racism can be played out both individually and institutionally. Uh, when people say there is no 
you know, institutional racism in America. There has been no institutional racism in America. I, I, I just feel like, uh, are we reading the same history books? I mean, what do you call the Jim Crow laws? Mm-hmm. What do you call slavery itself before it was declared illegal? If that's not institutional racism, I don't know what is. And even when laws like that were abolished, there can be and often is institutional racism taking place. I mean, it's the, the studies are pretty clear. If you're black and you're living in America, you are less likely to get a quality education. You are less likely to get a high paying job. You are less likely to live in a more affluent neighborhood uh, with less crime. That's a fact. Uh, and often institutionalized racism is behind it. Now, what's interesting is that most Christians would condemn racism, but we'd be very naive to think that it doesn't still exist even within the church. So I, I remember you, you've spoken, spoken about shadow racism before. Mm. C- could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, who, who, who do you know that would say, yeah, I'm a racist and proud of it unless they're some real you know, fringe group? Most of us, I believe, would condemn racism in any and every form. If you're a white person, you would say you are not racist toward black people or Hispanics or Asians or Jews or anyone else. You, you would say, look, I don't wear a white robe and burn crosses. I, you, know, you think Hitler and the Holocaust was contemptible. You condemn slavery in any and every form. You don't believe in segregation. You would never identify with white supremacists. And it goes without saying you would never take up violence against someone because of the color of their skin. The mass shootings that seem to fill every news cycle after news cycle horrify you as much as anyone else. So if someone were to ask you, you would say, look, there's not a racist bone in my body. But what if it's not about bones? Um, What if it's about succumbing to racial feelings and ideas and reactions and choices um, I've heard it said that racism is not an identity. It's it's not like a tattoo. Um, it's describing what a person is doing in the moment. And people change from moment to moment. Uh, the racism for today, uh, for most people, is different than the racism of the Civil War and slavery, or as I mentioned, the era of the Jim Crow laws. As, as one uh, black sister of mine put it, um, she said, there's more of an implicit bias than a functional racism at play in our world. And that's where I started calling it a shadow racism um, that can rear its head in anyone's life. And because it's in the shadows, it needs to be brought into the light. Uh, so let me give you some examples of, of shadow racism. Let me, let's say you're an employer and you've solicited resumes for a particular job. There are no pictures on these resumes, uh, just their education and experience, their accomplishments and their credentials. You've got four in front of you that you have vetted or were vetted for you and are now in front of you to choose. And they're virtually identical in terms of quality. You look at their names and you see William, Bridget, Prince and Donata. Now you're white and you kind of think to yourself, Prince, Donata. I think those sound black to me. William and Bridget sound white. And to your thinking, you start kind of, it affects who you who you might, if it affects who you might call for the interview. Okay. Um, it, it, do you privately make an assessment of worth, value, capability, likability based on names, even though the resumes are the same? Okay, that's shadow racism. Uh, another example, you see a black man with a white woman out on a date or even married. How do you viscerally feel about it? Uh, good or bad, neutral or biased, positive or negative. I remember one white man telling me, I just don't like it. I just don't like it. 
I don't know why. I don't know how. I just don't like it. And um, that's that's a racist attitude. Uh, because there's nothing wrong with inter interracial relationships. There's nothing wrong with interracial marriage at all. In God's eyes, it's not an interracial thing at all. Uh, it's just two human beings that he created for relationship with him and with each other. Uh, by the way, in case you have any doubt about interracial marriage not being interracial at all in God's eyes, that there is no white or black or anything else, just humans when it comes to all human interaction. Um, and marriage, as long as it's between a male and a female, has no racial issues then just go to the Bible and see what happened when a white black marriage took place. And it was met with racism and it was met with prejudice. And God stepped in and gave a very swift and clear verdict on that because you have that very set of events recorded in the Bible. Uh, the man was white, the woman was black. Uh, his family didn't like it, particularly his brother and even more so perhaps his sister. They wanted him removed from leadership because of it. Marrying a black woman was to their thinking wrong, bad, unnatural. They even tried to lead a rebellion against him. And uh, if you don't know who I'm talking about, it was Moses. Uh, his wife was a Cushite and people known for their dark skin features. In fact, later on, the land of Cush became uh, associated with Ethiopia. So how did God feel about it? When Miriam, along with Aaron, criticized Moses over it, it's interesting, God struck her with leprosy. And there was an irony to that. Uh, if you had leprosy, you became an outcast. You were excluded from the community of Israel at that time. So in her racism, wanting to reject an interracial marriage from the community, God ejects her. Um, I think God made his evaluation of Moses' marriage pretty clear. Um, another example of shadow racism. <laughs> you... Uh, might remember the story uh, a while back about four black high school students who were going door to door to raise money for their, their football team it was in Arkansas. And one minute they were laughing and talking to each other as they went door to door. The next they were on the ground in a stranger's front yard with their hands behind their backs uh, while a white woman with a handgun ordered them to stay put. Before she even went out with her gun to confront them, she had already called 911. The officer arrived, he saw the woman holding a gun on the four boys uh, lying on the ground and he told her to put her gun away and had the children stand up and they explained they were just selling discount cards for a school athletic program. The woman ended up facing felony charges of aggravated assault and false imprisonment. And when she asked, why on earth did you do that? She said it was because all four boys were black and that area was white. In other words, they had no business being there. Uh, you've probably heard of other stories like that. Uh, another way of demonstrating shadow racism is through uh, pseudo acceptance. Uh, another woman from Africa, I remember once said to me, racism is if you invite me to a party, but you never ask me to dance. And what she meant by that was, in other words, you, you, you give me pseudo acceptance. You don't really invite me in to involve me or to engage me. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, okay, so that's an example. One last area where shadow racism can manifest itself is, uh, your home life, particularly with your children. What, what do they hear you say? Um, what do they see you do? Um, how are you shaping their thinking and, and their perspectives? Does a viewpoint toward people of color come out as you drive along in the car, as you walk through a mall, as you watch the news? I remember hearing 
the story of a four-year-old who didn't want a black volunteer to hug uh, her because they were afraid the black would rub off. Now that's a four-year-old. And that dear volunteer just vowed to love that child even more, knowing they were four and they didn't know better. But that was the first time, apparently, that that child had ever been touched by a black person. Okay, why is that? Why is that? If you saw a white family had a little girl and she had a black doll, would that strike you as odd or somehow wrong? Or would it be, you know? So just there's so much within a family that shapes. A uh, public religion research institute um, study found, and I and I knowing we were talking about this, I brought this these results. They found that in a 100 friend scenario, white people had just one black friend, one Hispanic friend, and one Asian friend. The other 97 were white. Now, to be fair, black people didn't do much better. Out of 100, they had eight white friends, two Hispanic friends, no Asian friends. Mm. Let's kind of bring this back. First of all, those were such great points. And I think that um, there's a lot there to think about. But to close, I want to think about what this might look like in terms of, a ch- of the church, because we we just mentioned how most Christians would say they're not racist, and yet there's shattered racism, which is a very real thing. So what are some prescriptions that we could write out for the church with regards to racism? You know, one thing, I, just let me say this at the very beginning. Uh, as you know, Mech's an integrated church. Very few churches are, uh, but we, we truly are. And, and, and one of the things when I'm asked by uh, pastors and church leaders, you know, how, how, how did that happen at Mech? How, how was, why is there so much diversity there? And I always say, well, you kind of attract who you platform. Is your staff lily white? Is your stage lily white? Um, or if I'm talking to a African-American brother, I say, well, you know, do you have any whites on stage? Do you have any whites on staff? Um, you know, you, you, have you, have you made an effort on terms of when you create videos on your website? I mean, are you doing anything at all to even attract diversity? And so I think one thing that the church can do just right off the bat is just be intentional about diversity. I mean, you know, just be intentional about it, work for it. It doesn't happen necessarily naturally. But, um, I, I, I would say that, that though, going back to your question, the very first thing a church can do is just, is just repent, just repent of racism if it's there. Uh, personal and corporate repentance whenever and wherever needed. Racism can flow in all directions, not just whites toward blacks. It can be blacks toward whites. It can be Hispanics toward Asians. It can be whites toward Hispanics. There's no end to how it can manifest itself. So as followers of Christ and as a community of Christ followers, we are the hope of the world. So nothing, uh, we have to model to the world what community looks like. And so when racism rears its head, blatant or in a shadow form, Turn from it, repent of it, ask for forgiveness, and a renewed mind and spirit. So that's first and foremost. Then I think there's some other practical steps a church can take. First, beyond what I said about just being intentional, um, hold each other accountable. If you see or hear anyone doing anything that is racist in nature, confront it. Uh, pull them aside and say, look, that's just not who we are. Uh, you know, friend, that's just not Jesus. That joke was not funny. We're better than that. Uh, and when it's pretty clear that they really didn't know that they were doing something offensive, again, pull them aside and just say, look, I know you didn't mean anything by that. I know your heart, but here's why that was hard for me. And here's why that's hurtful to our relationship. You know, me as a black man to you as a white person or vice versa. 
a second big idea is help educate each other. You know, um, help people know what's offensive and why. Let's say you're black and you have a white brother who dressed up in blackface this Halloween. Don't immediately assume the worst about his heart or its intent. Just pull him aside a day or two later and say, look, I, I know that you're probably not sensitized to the history of blackface and the way that it was used to mock black people or take them out of artistic roles so that it could stay whites only. I know you don't know that, but I wanted you to know that's why it hurts. And I love you. And I just wish you hadn't done it. And just as a brother, I just wanted to kind of bring you along with where, where I'm at with these things. Or maybe you see someone proudly displaying a Confederate sticker, uh, you know, a flag of some sort. For them, it may be history, maybe heritage, not hate. But for you, part of that heritage was hate in the form of slavery and white supremacy. That's a fair thing to share and to talk about. In other words, you don't just take offense or have a chip on your shoulder or assume the worst. You talk and you create education within the Christian community with each other. One of the things that I find is that blacks bring an awful lot of baggage to the table and appropriately so. Whites bring a lot of ignorance to the table and everybody brings a whole lot of fear. Uh, and we just have got to be able to talk as a family. Another big idea is that if you're a white person, intentionally build relationships with blacks. If you are black, intentionally build them with whites and across every other racial divide. Uh, do it with Asians, do it with Hispanics, any, any and every other type of person because we're all one in Christ. So reach out, uh, broaden your relational world. And as the relationship grows, get to know them as that person, as someone who is black, who is Hispanic, uh, who is Asian, which is another big idea, or at least another big idea. People in the white community often feel really awkward talking about race or that they're walking on eggshells with all that they don't know and all that they don't understand. They're afraid of offending. They're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, I remember I asked a group of, of black meckers about this once, um, and uh, I, I pulled together actually a series of meetings with members of our black community just to ask questions and, and to get some clarity on some things. I was getting ready to teach about some racial issues and, and I just, just wanted to, to uh, make sure some things, hear some things, listen to some things. I remember we also did some filming of some groups, particularly after the death of George Floyd and murder of George Floyd. And, um, and just so that, you know, the white members of, of Mac could hear from the black members of Mac and understand their pain and, and, and what this meant to them and, and, and such. But anyway, I remember I was talking to a group of about once and to a person uh, when I said, so what would you say to white people, you know, that are awkward? And they just said, just tell them to come and talk to me. <laughs> you know, Ask me any question they want. I'm not going to bite their head off, you know, done with respect. And in a way that's not degrading, they'd be thrilled to talk about race thrilled to talk about ethnic distinctives. And, and um, there, there was one white uh, high school girl who just wanted to ask one of the black student leaders about the differences between their hair. And, and, and the, the, the black student leader just laughed, said, you know, this was such a big deal. She just didn't know how to ask me. She said, girl, I'll talk hair all day long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll be glad to do this. You know, if she didn't mind. 
And if done with relationship in mind and with respect, nobody is offended by this. We don't have to be walking on eggshells. Let's make it legal to talk about this. Um, and the last thing that I would say, and again, I know I'm giving long answers to short questions, but um, forgive. There just has to be the art of forgiveness and learn how to forgive. And and here, I think it's our, our black brothers and sisters who might need just to forgive a lot of things and a lot of people. I, I was in, this This struck me when I was, I remember so clearly this day, it was in 2004. And I was in, uh, I was tra- doing an international trip and I w- found myself in Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, on the very day, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was there on the day of the 10th anniversary of the ending of apartheid. It was a huge celebration in South Africa. And uh, during my time there, um, I went to the Apartheid Museum, which is an amazing experience. If anyone ever gets a chance to get even close to, to Johannesburg, they, they need to go. There, there's, it's, it's, it's akin to the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington. You know, I, I was at command performance. But here's what's interesting about the Apartheid Museum. There's two entrances. When you buy your ticket, you are randomly assigned to one or the other entrance. You do, what you don't know, but you find out, is that one is the white entrance and one is the non-white entrance. And you're only allowed entrance through the door of your race. It's then that you realize that the entire museum experience places you under apartheid. Mm. Um, I was assigned non-white and I had to enter that way and experience what that would be like. I, and I felt everything you might imagine. I, I was awkward. I was ashamed. Um, I was sick to my stomach that humans would ever treat each other that way. But most of all, I just felt the weight of the evil of it all. And it was evil. But the turning point in South African history took place actually in the late 1980s. And the museum recognizes it because there's a part of the museum that is a replica of a prison cell from Robben Island, specifically cell block B, uh, that for 18 years uh, housed a black man by the name of Nelson Mandela, who became a Christian after watching a Billy Graham crusade on television. In 1998, while still in prison, 1988, I'm sorry, while still in prison, um, Mandela received, extended an invitation to the government to negotiate an end to apartheid. And you fast forward in time and you have the election of 1994, uh, seen by many as a miracle, and one of the only times in history that a colonizing group gave up its power without a civil war uh, or large-scale external intervention. After his release from prison, Nelson Mandela became the state president of South Africa. Now, what led to that turn of events? Well, the former Anglican Archbishop of, of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, simply said, had Nelson Mandela not been willing to forgive we would not have reached first base on anything. You know, we think of the dream of community birth in Mandela's heart, but we too often forget Tutu's insight. It was not a community that happened naturally. It was forged through specific acts and decisions, mostly of the spirit. Or as Mandela put it, like what, what was it that he had to do? He said, I had to refuse to hate. I had to refuse to hate, forgive. But without the acceptance of Christ in his life, I doubt that refusal to hate could have taken root, but Mandela let it take root because he was a Christ follower. And I would say, so should we. And that's going to be the seedbed 
for the community we're called to be. This was so rich. This was everything that I hoped you'd be able to squeeze into a 30 plus minute time. Um, but but I guess all, all to say, I think I, I really would, and I, we will fill the show notes with the message that you had given on this or a series of them. I know you've written blogs about this too. Really because when we had this, when you when you gave this um, series at Mech, it was just such a, it almost like it gave people permission to have really great conversations with people about it. But not just conversations, but really productive conversations that because we started with the theology of race from the perspective of God, we knew exactly how to encourage each other in these conversations. It's almost as if everybody, you know, was eager to love, eager to understand, eager for unity and eager to forgive. And, and I don't know, it just kind of set the tone and it has been so helpful. And it wasn't just a one-time ordeal. I mean, this conversation has been ongoing um, and it impacts a lot of what we do at, at MEC and the conversations decisions that we have. And so, but to your point, it can be awkward to talk about and there can be a lot of fear there. So I hope people will take advantage of how easy it is to share these podcasts with people. Um, And then also, you know, how rich we, we try to fill that, that show note space. Um, And yeah, I, I hope that this is able to launch really productive conversations for people as well. But that's because you guys were here listening. So we appreciate you um, for being here. We're going to take next week off for the holiday, as we hope you guys will too. But we will be back again in two weeks. And again, we hope you are too. So thanks for joining us.